I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today's guest is Dr. James Dotti, professor of neurosurgery at Stanford University School of Medicine and the founder and director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. This is the center that His Holiness the Dalai Lama is the founding benefactor of. And James is considered one of the leading experts uh, on the neuroscience of compassion. Having overcome challenging childhood himself, he has achieved an incredible level of success in becoming a spokesperson for the concept from a scientific point of view. He is a neurosurgeon, a neuroscientist, an entrepreneur, a New York Times best-selling author. He's an inventor. He's a philanthropist. He is the author of Into the Magic Shop, a neuroscience quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. This is a book that has been translated into 36 languages around the world and was a New York Times bestseller, along with being a bestseller in so many places around the world. Definitely an authority on compassion and neuroscience. So we're gearing up for a very exciting conversation today. James, thank you so much for being with me today. It's such an honor. Hello. (laughs) How are you? I am so good. So happy to see you. When we met last time, it was Wisdom in Business in Amsterdam. And you spoke about your story of Into the Magic Shop. And you're white American. You're actually lived a big portion or a portion of your life in that top high-end earning successful business person place. And you grew up poor, you grew up in poverty, you grew up in a very, very difficult circumstances. And yet who you are today is a person that is almost entirely driven by the opposite values of what we've just been discussing. I mean, you're a person that's dedicating his life to compassion in an interesting way when you're supposed to be a neurosurgeon, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's really an inspiring story. So I, I know you tell this story a lot, but I'd love if you don't mind sharing it with us a little bit today. I think it inspires a lot of people about the change we need to see. Yes. You know, it's interesting because, uh, do you remember the song Stairway to Heaven? Oh, I love that. Yes. But uh, who was the singer of that? I can't remember. But Led Zeppelin. Anyway, he made a statement that he said, you know, I used to get so irritated because the only thing people wanted to hear was Stairway to Heaven, even though I had these new songs and I did all this stuff. (laughs) And uh, he said, you know, it was very frustrating. And he said that, but then one day he realized that it wasn't about him, right? What he wanted, it was what inspired other people. And in some ways, I'm in that sort of situation myself. I am too, believe it or not, yeah. Yeah, it's it's because, you know, those types of stories of inspiration and you feel comforted by them. You look at it and you say, these are possibilities for me even. And many, many people are inspired by the story. 
even though, of course, I've told it innumerable times. <laughs> and, and even for me, uh, telling it, I still feel it emotionally. So I, um, I accept that reality, and I have no problem with it. Uh, I think that uh, if we can find those individuals who can inspire us to be our best selves, of course, that's the ideal and people who we feel comfortable looking to what they've accomplished. You grew up to a father who was an alcoholic? Yes. A mother who was depressed? Well, she had had a stroke when I was a child and was partially paralyzed and had a seizure disorder. And so as a result of that, yes, she became chronically depressed. And of course, in that situation where, you know, you're poor, your husband's an alcoholic, you, you know, are sort of living on the edge. I think depression's a natural consequence of uh, that, unfortunately. And then you were 12 and very unhappy. Indeed. <laughs> and you, you walk into that place where there is an old woman who, I heard you say the story many times, but I think when you said it in the Wisdom in Business conference, you basically said she wasn't supposed to be there. It's her son's place or something like that. Yeah, her son was running an errand, and she was just uh, minding the store for him. She was visiting him for uh, six weeks during the summer. Interestingly enough, the reason she was visiting for six weeks was because her grandson was supposed to be visiting. And what had happened was that shortly before I walked into that shop, the husband, he was divorced from the mother, and they had gotten into an argument, so the mother refused to send the boy for the summer. Mm. Yeah, so in some ways, perhaps I became the surrogate for him. Oh. And she spent the time with me. This boy, I think, was 11 years old or something like that. Tell me what happened. So how did that story unfold? When you walk in, you're depressed, you're angry, you're blaming others, and she tells you something that changes your life. Well, I think the first part of it is to recognize that, and this is the possibility for everyone, is that instead of greeting me with suspicion or sort of wanting to know what I wanted, she greeted me with a radiant smile and began a conversation where she made me feel like an adult and that my opinion and our conversation, we were on equal levels and she wasn't looking down on me. And the nature of that smile and her actions were such that she made me feel safe. And certainly all of us want to be in an environment where we feel psychologically safe, especially from essentially myself coming from this sort of toxic environment that in many ways uh, was very traumatizing. So the nature of the comfort that I felt in her presence, even though having just met her, allowed us to have a conversation. And she asked some penetrating questions, which I answered. And then that led essentially to the techniques that um, she taught me. And from that, uh, basically changed everything. And this is interesting. It's like, I don't know if you've met the Dalai Lama or not. I did, yeah. Amazing, amazing being. Right. So, you know, when... You meet someone who essentially in their presence, you feel this sense of unconditional love. This mask that you wear melts away and you are who you are because they're not judging you in any way. They're accepting you. And then you can feel free of all your fears and concerns 
and just interact with somebody. And I think that's really the um, most important aspect of all of our interactions, actually. It's quite shocking, actually, because we live in a world today where there is nothing but masks, really. You know, when you were talking about how a perception of an, a successful man or a rich woman or whatever is in America and being exported to the world, really, it's, it's just masks all the time. I mean, they call them reality shows when in reality there is no reality in them at all. And it's becoming quite a, a big issue because I don't know if the people I'm dealing with are real anymore. Well, I think that is the challenge. Uh, how do you know what's real, what isn't? I think that there are some people also get very good at, if you will, judging a room or judging another person and then manipulate them. And I go into conversations generally with an open, optimistic perception. But I mean, frankly, I've been proven wrong more than once. Now people say, well, why do you keep doing that then? My statement is I would much rather continue to do that and be wrong than never believe that anyone is sincere. Hmm. Yeah, we, uh, at the end of the day, I think there is always a sincere layer somewhere in there. Like you said about that old lady, when you give someone the safety, that layer shows up. But until then, there's always that kind of protective approach to life, right? Well, and that's the interesting thing about the Dalai Lama, because his very presence is like that. You feel comfortable, you feel safe, you feel you're not being judged. And a lot of people ask me what it's like to spend time with the Dalai Lama or other of these spiritual and religious leaders like Desmond Tutu or Amma or Sri Sri. And, you know, it's always the same. I mean, and the thing about these individuals is in some ways they are beyond the dogma of their spiritual practice or religious practice, meaning that they're not really interested in that part of you. What they're interested in is, do you care? Do you love? Are you compassionate? Yeah. And I think that is the determinant of how they judge you, not what sutra you've memorized. Yeah, which really is what it's all about when you really think about it. I think if you're fanatic about a certain spiritual path or religious title, then by definition, you're following your ego. You're really not, you're not for the purpose of what that teaching is. You're for, you know, I cheer for that football club or I'm, you know, a fan of that team. Well, that's absolutely the case. And, you know, I'm sure you've experienced it. I, I mean, I've certainly experienced whether it's among Buddhists or uh, evangelical Christians or others they carry this title with them as if that's a banner yeah. uh, that supports their ego versus understanding that truth, honesty, kindness, gentleness, acceptance, that's the real currency that gives life meaning. But then I want to go to that moment. So you're a young man whose expected path in life is you're going to be aggressive, you're going to be unhappy, you're not going to be successful. And then years later, because of that little encounter that teaches you simple things around concentrating and breathing and, you know, feeling loved and, and appreciated and manifesting your reality and so on. I don't know how many years later, but you sort of become the typical Steve Jobs image uh, that we all dream of. It's like, you know, you start a business, you have massive success, you make a lot of money and then you lose it all. That moment to me, I think, is so interesting because of two reasons. One, people think 
that making a lot of money is going to make us happy and not having money is going to make us unhappy. And you have a statement that blows me away. I actually wrote it down here about that. But the second point before we go back to this is that idea that we have that tendency to believe that life ends when things go wrong, which I think is something that is so real for the current situation with the pandemic. People think that this is going to end our lives or our economic abilities, and that doesn't seem to be true at all. So I want to cover those two, maybe one at a time. You said, I ended up having everything, and then I realized I had nothing. And then I gave it all away, and I had everything. Now, that's a complex statement. What do you mean by that? You had a Ferrari, a Porsche, very fancy lifestyle, pretty girlfriends, and you say you had nothing. Well, because at the end of the day, I would come home. And of course, you know, when you were in my position, or perhaps even your position at one point in time, your friends look at you and they think you're the epitome of success. You do have these fancy cars. You're living in a multi-million dollar home. You're doing these things that they're not able to do. And they're very envious and they're telling you how lucky you have it. And what would happen to me is I would do all of these different things or I would get another accomplishment and I was feeling nothing. In fact, I was unhappy because I kept going, why isn't this giving me I know. this feeling of happiness? Why isn't it giving me all the stuff I thought that chasing after this would give me? And then, of course, when I lost everything, it put me through a period of uh, deep reflection And I went back, actually, to that conversation, the magic shop, and I realized that what I was asking for and what I didn't appreciate at the time because I was 12 was I was asking for the things that I thought at 12 would make me happy. And I sort of relentlessly chased that, not that I was ever mean or cruel to anyone, but it was all about me and accomplishing those tasks. And When I lost everything, I went back, I looked at the notes that I had taken at that time, and the part I had forgotten or didn't internalize was that to have real meaning in life and to really be happy basically involves being of service. So I had made these commitments to charity, but I had no money, and uh, the only asset I had left was stock in a company that I had run. And uh, I had actually pledged that for these charitable obligations, but my attorney, uh, when I was trying to deal with all of my asset issues or the money that I owed people, had informed me that I didn't have to give it away at all, that they had not actually filed the paperwork. And at that moment, I decided to go ahead and honor those commitments, which basically resulted in me giving every penny I had a way, which was $30 million, in the face of me being $3 million in the hole. And what I say is that the singular action of doing that in some ways liberated me because I had always been chasing the money, if you will, thinking that was the source of happiness. And by giving everything away in the face of you know $3 million in debt, that monkey was no longer on my back. And ultimately, that money I gave away, and I can't tell you all of it was used by the charities I gave it the way I wanted necessarily, but that being said, I was able to set up health clinics all over the world, blood banks, programs for the disabled, AIDS, HIV program, 
and also give monies to my medical school and to Stanford because both of those institutions were very important to my development and success. So at the end of the day, it did give me everything. And it gave me a a different view of the world that instead of being focused on my own success, and that doesn't necessarily mean not caring for other people, but changing the reference point to the actions I do are for the benefit of people and understanding that ultimately I'll benefit in the end, that really did change everything for me. I actually need to understand this. I have never gone that far, to be honest. Even though I give a lot and I I love the idea of giving, I give a very large portion of whatever I earn, but to give it all away, that's a big decision. It's like, it's not only a desire to make a difference, it's fearlessness of like, you know what, life, show me what you got. I don't need you and I don't need your money. That is a big statement. I want to understand how, what would make someone do this? Well, yeah, especially when you owe $3 million. And especially if it's $30 million, right? I mean, $30 yes. million is a big amount of money. Yes. Well, I think I'd gotten to the point of sort of, in some ways, understanding that sort of the belief system I had created for myself wasn't the one that I wanted to be in anymore. And I felt that by throwing, and I should say throwing it away, it reminded me, there used to be a, a comic book um, in the Sunday papers, and it was called Prince Valiant. And in fact, I cut this out of the newspaper when I was probably 12 or 13, in fact. But it, it told the story of Prince Valiant, and he was after, I think, a witch or a warlock or something like this. But anyway, this witch had um, sort of done all of these things, and she had curse had been set on her, and that made her ugly. And she spent her whole life trying to track down this container that would make her beautiful again. And she did all of these sort of horrible things. And finally, Prince Valiant caught up with her. And I can't remember the exact details, but basically, she looked at him and then uh, she said, you know, I chased all of this. And then I realized it meant nothing. And she's by pool or something. And she takes it and she throws it away because she realized that was not going to make her beautiful. And, uh, and I think in some ways, all that money wasn't going to sort of change sort of this emptiness that I felt inside unless I sort of gave it all away, had a new perspective, and then sort of rebuilt myself. Started again. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think this applies to other things that we cling to? I mean, if someone is clinging onto a relationship saying, I'm going to fix him, is throwing him away a better thing is, you know, if you're trying so hard to restore a classic car because we, you know, we love old cars so much, is throwing it away going to fix you? I mean, is that actually an easier path to correcting ourselves when we're clinging? Well, I think the nature of suffering is attachment and uh, attachment to an outcome and a hope and a belief that your attachment will benefit you. And I think attachment is wonderful, but you can't be attached to the outcome. And I think that's where most people suffering. And, you know, if you're hoping and praying that by clinging to this relationship, which probably deep down, you know, is either not healthy or going to benefit you, I think walking away is the appropriate thing to do. But of course, that's a very difficult thing because in some ways, it's like being in an abusive marriage. The thing you know feels more safe than the thing you don't know. 
And so people have a tendency to stay in these unhealthy situations because they're terrified of being over the abyss without a safety net. Yeah. And I think that was my situation to, again, give it all away and then be there with nothing and uh, believe that the worldview that I held, which was uh, now to care and have a meaningful life, justified this action and I would benefit. Now, I will tell you that, you know, I had just begun dating a woman at that time. And uh, she must have dumped you. <laughs> well, no, actually. <laughs> okay. Uh, I've been married to her for, for 20 years or so. Wonderful. Oh, that's the best test ever that you can have uh, to see if she's uh, really the one. I agree, actually. Yeah, but she did say that she didn't mind me being generous. She just wished I hadn't given it all away. I would say that. So I, I know the rest of your story, and the rest of your story is remarkable. Do you believe this was actually a turning point? I mean, you were not that spiritual at the time, were you? No, not at all. In fact, it's funny. Yeah. Uh, my present wife, we were dating around this time, and she actually had tickets to go to a teaching by the Dalai Lama in the Bay Area, and she bought two tickets, and I actually refused to go with her. Oh, wow. I told her I had no interest in that. And, and it's interesting because she went, and it was, I think, two or three days. And then a few weeks later, I was walking through Stanford, and I had already begun this uh, project, which we called Project Compassion at the time. And actually, a vision of the Dalai Lama came into my head, and um, I couldn't shake it. And it was interesting because, again, as I told you, I didn't have any particular feeling towards the Dalai Lama, but this image persisted. And, and it was during a time where I was thinking of having a, a symposium on uh, the power of compassion and the research we had done. To make a long story short, uh, that vision stayed with me, and I decided I was going to invite the Dalai Lama to attend this event. And I ended up meeting him. And during our conversation, not only did he immediately uh, agree to come to Stanford and speak, but ultimately our time together went far beyond the 15 minutes that was allocated. And then his translator, Thupton Jinpa, and he uh, began an animated conversation. And at the end of it, His Holiness finished talking, and then Jinpa turned to me and he said, His Holiness is so moved by this effort you're undertaking that he wants to make a donation. So at this very first meeting... He gave me the largest donation he had ever given to a uh, non-Tibetan cause. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yes. Uh -huh. And so then what happened is two other individuals came forward and each gave a million dollars. And that's how our center started at Stanford. And then His Holiness and I became friends. And ultimately, I became the chairman of the Dalai Lama Foundation. And then one of the things as part of the center out of my own interest, was actually to do something called Conversations on Compassion. So I would meet with different individuals on stage, just the two of us, and have a dialogue and ask questions I was interested in, all oriented around compassion, because the individuals had dedicated their lives to compassion. And this included scientists and business leaders, but ultimately it included the Dalai Lama, it included... Eckhart Tolle, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, Sadhguru, and a whole variety of other uh, spiritual and religious leaders. And all of them I became friends with. And uh, Oh, lucky you. 
Yeah, so uh, I probably know more Indian gurus than most Indians do. <laughs> <laughs> you see, you see, this is better than $30 million, don't you think? Well, I tell you, uh, being able to spend time with those individuals and learn from them and observe them is priceless. I mean, very few people get that opportunity. And again, you understand these individuals in the sense of the power of kindness, compassion, caring, and how many people it moves, whether it's the followers of the Dalai Lama or Amma or any of these individuals. So it shows you how dedicating your life to something like compassion and motivating people with the right world perspective, in my belief, really changes not only their lives, but profoundly changes your own life. And in fact, the Dalai Lama says, oh, yeah. it's one of the only times it's okay to be selfish. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that. I actually believe it's the most selfish act you can do because, again, I have no scientific proof of this, but with a little bit of understanding of karma, it sounds a lot like the law of conservation of energy, if you ask me. You know, what you put out in the world just insists to come back to you in blessings. And it's actually quite an eye-opening thing that by acts of service, you're improving your own life in many, many, many ways. No, I think you're absolutely correct. And I think this is what people forget. The other problem, I think, for many people is so many people have this internal dialogue that says, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I can't do this. I can't do that. And in many ways, it leads to self-rumination over and over playing this record. And the problem is when you get into that rumination, it stops you from seeing the outside world as I believe it really is. You have a tendency to look then when your own life is miserable or you feel it's miserable to look at the rest of the world and think it's miserable. So when you change your perspective, change that internal dialogue, then you open up and you see that others are suffering. In fact, many people suffering more than you. Yeah. And when you make efforts to help those individuals as best you can, then your own negative feelings, your own negative emotions actually dissipate when you're of service to another. And uh, so I think that's another very important lesson. So tell me, James, I mean, I'm like you. I've been blessed with meeting and learning from, and now with this podcast, I also catch up very frequently with amazing, amazing people with amazing stories and amazing understanding of the world, really, the way it should be. And it gives me hope, to be honest. I think, oh my God, like, there are so many good people out there. And then you have what we started our conversation with, and it gives you, like, seriously, you know, is this how low we've come? And it just puzzles me. How can there be so many good people out there and we end up where we are? I mean, I'm not saying, by the way, that life is bad in any way. I think humanity is doing amazing. But I think we're, there are so many acts that are almost shameful to look at. You know, they're just wrong. You know, they're not human in any way. What's leading us to that place when there are so many good people out there? Well, I think there are a couple issues. I think, unfortunately, because of the nature of access to events happening in the world 24-7 and the reality that as a human species, we turn our eyes towards the negative because, of course, if you look at how we evolved as a species, 
negative events put our lives at risk. So we're highly attuned to those, and that's what sticks to us. So while the reality is that probably 95% of people are doing good in the world, the 5% uh, that do bad in the world suck up a lot of the airtime or suck up our attention. And of course, news organizations are interested in making money. And without conflict, they don't make money. There has to be constant conflict of some type for them to financially benefit. So I think that's part of it. And I think the other part is that even if you look at politics in America, the vast majority of people are on one side or the other of the middle view. And we have 5% of people on either side who are the extreme view. And that could be both the progressive as well as the conservative side. But most people just want to live their lives, feel safe, feel comfortable. They're not interested in these far extremes. Yet, again, it's the far extremes that get all the attention and then try to sway whoever's right or left of center to vote for them. And uh, it's, uh, I think, part of the problem as well. But that's exactly, I think, the biggest manifestation of the problem is that those 95%, if united around acts of service, around the act of compassion, around actually standing up and saying, you know what, I don't want to change the world. I just want to help this person that just passed by me. Like, like you said, just give them a big smile and say, it's going to be okay. If those 95% would get up, then the majority of the world is good. I think the challenge we have, and I wrote about this in one of my future works called Understanding Faith, and I think the idea is, is that what is causing the world to see negatives is not the people who do bad. It's the lack of good by the people who are idols, if you want. There is not one single person that's throwing more plastic bottles in the world than, than the rest of us and doing 40% of the problem. Each and every one of us is just throwing one bottle. And by not getting up with those acts of responsibility, acts of, of good and acts of compassion, I think this is where we miss out on the opportunity to change everything. Well, I agree with you. And I, I think, again, most people are good, but the question is, will they stand up? And the reason I make that differentiation is to stand up oftentimes puts one at risk. And when the vast majority of people are afraid, and this is, of course, why during the Nazi era, and I'm not quoting this correctly, but the gist of it is that, you know, when they came for the trade unionists, I didn't stand up. When they came for the homosexuals, I didn't stand up. When they came for the Poles, I didn't stand up. And then when they came for me, there was no one to stand up for me. And I think, unfortunately, this is the nature of human beings. Uh, many are afraid. Many don't want to get involved. And they hope that whatever bad is happening doesn't affect them. And they'll put their head in the sand, and oftentimes it will be too late. And I think that, uh, unfortunately, this is the nature of many people. You know, as long as their world is safe and they can do what they feel is worthwhile within their world, and that means actually oftentimes doing a lot of good, but when it really comes down to where they have to take a stand, they're very afraid. And this is how populists and dictators and authoritarian leaders take power because none of them could be in power unless 
90% of people stood by and did nothing. I mean, it's just not possible, right? Mm. Whether it's Hitler, whether it's uh, all of these other people, they have the opportunity. The other sad thing is that a large number of people will put their head into the sand in regard to what's ethically and morally correct to get a leg up for their own situation. And that's another subset of people. And you see the Germans who clearly knew what they were doing was 100% wrong, but bought into it because they received some benefit for it. And uh, I'm not trying to castigate just Germans in the Holocaust, uh, but I think this, again, is human nature. There's a subset of people. As an example, in many of these scenarios, people who are insecure or fearful, they'll immediately join up with an authoritarian person to persecute other people because it gives them a sense of power and uh, self-import, which is something they never had before. And again, you look at these different crises, uh, that's almost invariably what happens. And it's unfortunate because, you know, then those people treat the rest of the population in this horrible fashion. And finally, at some point, people stand up, but a lot of death and uh, tragedy will ensue prior to that happening. So what would be a call to action now? I mean, by the way, I'm, I'm not fully in agreement. Every time I speak to someone who is on a spiritual path and talks about compassion and so on, we all share the view that the world is not as negative as we make it to be, which I believe is very true. The 5% negativity is what gets magnified. I think what's wrong with our world, to be honest, and I'm not being critical here, is if you look at the stock market, there are lagging indicators and leading indicators. Lagging indicators are those things that already happened, they're factored into your thinking. Leading indicators are things that you are forecasting for the future based on the current situation and where it's going. And I think what I worry about for all of us is that we're, we're still consuming plastic bottles. I use that because it's such a vivid example. And yes, we're not in a state of disaster yet, but if we continue to do this, we will be, right? We're still burning too much fuel. It's not completely global warming yet, but if we continue, we will be. We're continuing to support wrong value systems. And like you rightly said, you know, not standing up for what we stand for. And yeah, it's still, the system is still manageable. But if we don't stand up, we will be in a lot of trouble. And I, I wonder what would be a call to action? I mean, if you're just me, a listener to slow-mo, what would you do today? Well, I think this is a challenging topic. In fact, uh, actually, before we began talking, I was on a conference call with the University of Edinburgh and a, a team I'm working with there. And uh, we were talking about having a program during the um, meeting on that the UN is putting on on global climate change, which is in Glasgow next year. And how does this intersect with this concept of compassion? To start a movement, you have to have it ignite on some level, then stimulates a lot of other people. You know, I have talked about having a compassion revolution. I'd love that. I'm a frontliner running like mad, even if they shoot me. Exactly. And uh, yeah. I think that how can you get the world's attention? One of the problems that I think we have to think about, and I'm not the first to bring this up, but maybe I'm the first to call it the following, which I'll explain in a second, but 
I'm sure you saw uh, this book called Winners Take All. No, actually, I did it, yeah. It's by Anand. Basically, it's this concept that the wealthy are not necessarily interested in having a solution if that solution involves them not maintaining their position or their wealth. And I use the analogy, it's like uh, what Tolstoy said. He said, there is a man on your back choking you, and he fully acknowledges the pain you're suffering, but at no time does he ever offer to get off your back and stop choking you. And what I mean by that is that you look at Davos and some of these other forums, and they're always run by who? The wealthy class and the billionaires who like to feel that they should be the ones in charge and they will dictate the solution and the solution invariably never has anything to do with them giving up their power or their ability to control the financial markets so that there's more equity. I mean, how can you imagine a world where, what is it, uh, 12 people control 50% of the world's assets? I mean, this is insulting in and of itself. But the other aspect is the converse of that where you have countries look within themselves and they say to themselves, what are the measures for human thriving? Because, of course, uh, we rely on GDP, but instead of that, which doesn't help human thriving, you look at a variety of indices that examine what is this country doing for the individual, what does the country feel it should do for the individual, But then more importantly, what is the country's responsibilities to the rest of the world? And I've worked with a group of people on this, and we've come up with 48 measures. But imagine, if you will, if a country, and actually I've been in discussion with some folks in New Zealand about this, if a country said, we're changing our paradigm where our entire country is centered around human thriving and how to be a country, if you will, in the world that also considers its responsibility to the rest of the world. And whether that involves climate change, sustainability, uh, not manufacturing or selling military equipment, one that is open to a certain number of refugees, et cetera, et cetera, how would that change the world? And I would submit to you that if you've got one, two, three, or four countries or more to agree to that, that would have a profound effect on the worldview, because those countries would change everything. And in some ways, New Zealand is already doing that, but you look like other countries like Iceland or Denmark. And I think that would be profound. The other thing is, how do you create a global movement? I'm not sure if you're aware. So my book is, I think, in 36 languages now. And interestingly enough, are you familiar with the K-pop group called BTS? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that. That sang about your book, right? Right, right. So they created, (laughs) I think, uh, a song called Magic Shop. But the reason I bring them up is if you could get a group that like that, and they have an army, right? They have the BTS army, literally hundreds of thousands of, if not millions of people across the world. If you could get them to align with this idea of a compassion revolution, if you could get, uh, and I had a conversation with... uh, Prince William and Meghan Markle about this as well, and the Pope and the Dalai Lama to sign on to this vision of a compassion revolution, what that would entail. Because you see, 
that then changes the global narrative of how people see themselves in the world and their responsibilities in the world. So I think that if you could pull something like that together and in some ways do it in the form of like uh, a we are the world event, but uh, have leading up to that all of these events in different cities in the world doing compassionate acts publicizing them. And then at this concert in this worldwide event, we have all these spiritual religious leaders and on some level celebrities come together. I think this is what the world is yearning for. And I think Generation Z, I think, yes, it puts the other one, Gen X or whatever. I think tons and tons of people want to have meaning in their life and they really want to change the world. They just need some guideposts that help them do that. And I think in my mind, if I could do that, uh, I think that would be a very, very worthy endeavor. I'm following. I'm not making this up. Like, I agree, actually, we absolutely need a compassionate revolution. I have to admit openly that every person I know, and I know thousands and thousands and thousands of people, even though we all have shadows, you know, is a good person inside. And I believe that the world has never needed for us to help each other out more than it does now. I mean, not about politics, just think about the pandemic. Just think about, I posted on social media a few days ago, the idea that whatever it is that you're feeling today, if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling worried, if you're feeling lonely, if you're feeling isolated and lacking touch and connection and intimacy and so on and so forth, There are so many millions out there that feel the same. Pick up the phone and call one of them. Like, it's really not such a difficult act. We're not asking you. I mean, when it was We Are the World, we were asking people to put in money. We're just asking people to smile, to talk to someone, to do, you know, a nice gesture, to just take action. And it's, yeah, it's time, honestly. It is time. No, no, I, I think you're exactly right. In fact, a couple of apps have popped up that allow you just to pick up the phone and call, put your number in there and say when you're available and people just call you to talk. And uh, I think that's what the world needs. I, you know, I was promoting, there's this thing called um, Next Door. I don't know if you've seen, have you ever seen Next Door? It's, it's actually a global corporate entity where you're connected to your neighborhood. So, you know, to solve crime or something, somebody needs something. But, you know, you could use that to reach out to your neighbors and to be of service and to go to the store for them or to do things for them. And in fact, yeah. you know, my older son, he's on this and he'll go buy groceries for people and things like that. So, so simple, so simple. And it would change the world. Yes. And there's actually... An app, uh, which I happen to be on the board of, that's starting to take off, it's called Gift-A-Deed. And basically, you sign up, and you know anybody can sign up. And then if you have something, like clothes, let's say for the winter, food, whatever it is, you can advertise that. Or somebody in need can tell you what they need, and it goes out to the world or your location, and uh, people can offer to help you. And at least in the places where it has been offered, has been very, very helpful and effective to people. You know, we just haven't, unfortunately, pulled together a group of people who are committed to that path. And uh, because, again, uh, it's scary, it's unknown, 
and there's certainly potential for failure, but I think there's probably incredible potential for success. And that success will, in fact, change the world and make all of our lives better. All it has to do with is perceiving your ability to create kindness, compassion, caring for another human being. I cannot agree more. I actually think if we just take the time, we waste watching the negative news that they pour into our heads every day and just replace that hour or half an hour a day with an act of compassion, just whatever it is, like buying groceries or just asking about your neighbor or whatever that is, I think that would completely change the world. Yeah, I was just going to say what people don't realize is because often they'll say, well, I'm not wealthy. I'm not in a position to do X, Y, or C. But every person has the ability to impact someone's life in a positive way every day. Every person. And I think that uh, you forget, and actually a lot of people give away the immense power that they have as human beings to impact the world. Because they sit there with this narrative, I can't do it, it's not possible. Well, you can do it. There are tons of people who do. You just have to take that first step. And if you look at individuals who've suffered deeply and have done extraordinary things, it all it takes is that first step and believing in yourself. There's a fellow by the name, I think it's David Goggins, and he came from a very challenging background of poverty and abuse and bullying. And uh, he was overweight And then one day he said, enough is enough. And then, you know, he became a marathon runner and uh, has won all of these awards for his perseverance and athleticism because he just wouldn't give up. And you have to realize that every one of us has him inside of us. We're just afraid to admit to it. We're afraid to take control of our power. And uh, once you do that, everything changes. And in fact, in some ways, if you think about this compassion revolution, it's the empowerment of everyone to be their best selves and to look at their fellow man as a soldier in this army. Totally, totally. I cannot agree more that the combined combined impact of all of us is so much bigger than wealth and politics and power and all of that. And it's just a small act every day. So for you guys listening, uh, we're going to start the Compassion Revolution. Find me and James on social media and tell us if you're going to join. If we just get a dwindling four of you saying we're going to join, we will just both kill ourselves. Anyway, no, <laughs> we, will, <laughs> we will not, but we will uh, ping you again. James, I'm so grateful for your time. I'm so grateful for the inspiration. I actually love the idea. And I think uh, you know me. So just call in and I'll be the front soldier running like mad being shot at. I'm absolutely in for this. Well, we should uh, get together and sort of think about how to plot this out. And uh, actually, I'm going to try to connect with my friends from BTS. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, some of these other folks, maybe they listen to your podcast here. I'm quite okay in Korea myself as well. I mean, so you, you had BTS. I had a show, I don't know how to say it in uh, Korean, but I was featured on a show that is called How to Be an Adult, which is like very typical Korean, you know, with the wee-wee and, you know, sounds and little things popping on the screen and so on. And so I actually was reasonably uh, kind of a pop status a bit in uh, in Korea when the book came out. So yeah, let's go do it in Korea. One of my favorite nations. 
Yes, yes. And, you know, the uh, thing is, on some level, you know, they're crying out to be happier and to, uh, oh, yeah. you know, there's a lot of unhappiness. And totally, because, yeah. unfortunately, the sort of extraordinarily competitive nature of society, and I think we've just seen a number of uh, individuals commit suicide, prominent individuals, and it's the nature of comparing yourself to other people. And I think this is also a, you know, a really serious problem where you feel you're not worthy unless you're getting all the likes in the world and all of these other things. And uh, in some ways, it's like giving that money away. I had all the likes in the world, but I was miserable. Yeah. And then when I gave it away and wasn't worried about the likes, then I was happy. And I think that's uh, something we all need to strive for. Absolutely. James, thank you so much for your time and the wonderful conversation. I hope tomorrow will be a bright day for all of us. Indeed. Okay, my friend. Great seeing you. Thank you so much. Same here. We'll be in touch. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you. Well, that was interesting. We started from pandemic and ended up with a compassion revolution. I mean, I couldn't ask for better. And uh, yeah, join us. Tell us if that's something that you're willing to sign up for. Find me on social media, please. Mo underscore Gaudet on Instagram. Mo Gaudet on LinkedIn. M Gaudet on Twitter. And mo.gaudet.official on Facebook. I do answer every question and respond to every request. So as much as I can. There are many of them, but please do stay in touch. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to meet with such interesting people and record our conversations. Love you all for listening, and I'll see you next time.